Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In this special edition of Lines from Loganberry, we present a seminar conducted by Dr. Monica Bell, Associate Professor of Law and Sociology at Yale Law School. Presented as part of Loganberry's Black Future Month, Dr. Bell discusses her research into the non-criminal functions of policing. In particular, policing's role in reinforcing and reproducing racial residential segregation. This seminar was recorded live and remotely on Thursday, August 6th, 2020. Thank you for listening and enjoy. I just want to start by thanking Dr. Monica Bell so much for joining us tonight all the way from um, New Haven, Connecticut. Thank goodness for this is a good upside of so many Zoom events that uh, we were able to connect and that she's been willing to join us tonight to talk about um, a lot of her her own research and hopefully a lot of you who are tuning in tonight um, got a chance to at least look at part of Dr. Bell's paper that um, was free to, to download and share it. If not, that link will stay, the link to anti-segregation policing will stay on our calendar um, up on our website and will stay in the Facebook event for anyone who wants. Um, if you need to re-download it, if you want to share it with friends, that is a great resource. But tonight, Dr. Monica Bell is a professor at Yale Law School um, and uh, is both in the law department and uh, as a sociology professor. And her research delves into a lot of areas on the intersection of law and sociology through um, sociological methods um, into areas of housing law, public benefits, welfare, residential segregation, race and the law, um, as of course she'll be talking a lot about tonight. And her work has appeared or is forthcoming in um, a lot of highly regarded academic journals um, and professional journals, American Journal of Sociology, a law journal, NYU Law Review, as um, a lot of us will have read tonight, a lot of other journals. And she's published writing in um, a lot of trade outlets as well. And she holds a BA from Furman University and degrees from University College Dublin, JD at Yale, and a PhD in sociology and social policy from Harvard. Um, So she is, we're very honored that she's here to talk to us tonight. And so, and I realized I forgot to say, I'm Elizabeth Plumley Watson from Loganberry Books. Thank you everyone. Um, We're so honored and we're especially thankful to Edwin's, um, Edwin's Institute and Restaurant, which many of you will know, share our uh, Larchmere Buckeye uh, Shaker Square neighborhood on Shaker Square. We're really thankful to them for co-sponsoring this talk tonight um, and helping us invite Dr. Bell to be with us. So without further ado, I will um, step out of here myself and pass it over to Dr. Bell. Thank you so much. Thank you so much uh, for 
inviting me to do this. It's really an honor to be a part of this conversation. And um, I also particularly just want to, um, to highlight uh, that a lot of the research and interviews and stuff that I've been a part of in terms of research teams has been conducted in Cleveland. So you would have noticed, it, and I should say, actually Cuyahoga County, so not just Cleveland per se, but the larger county, which I think is important for having this conversation about policing and segregation. So um, uh, I'm really, really honored to, to be with you tonight. So what I want to do in the talk is to basically break this up into three parts. So the first part of my talk is about the persistence of segregation. So that's just kind of like the starting point. What are we even talking about when we talk about residential segregation in 2020? Um, it's often a problem that people see as one of the uh, pre-civil rights movement era. And so I just want to talk a little bit more about what I mean by segregation. Uh, second, I'm going to uh, talk a bit about how policing reproduces segregation, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about what that means. So in the article, there are six ways, six different mechanisms I discuss um, as the mechanisms of pro-segregation policing. Uh, in this talk, I'm going to highlight three and tell some of the stories of people um, who have confronted these particular mechanisms. And then finally, um, because this is for Black Future Month, which I'm super excited to be a part of, I was like, oh, the only thing that can rescue August is calling it Black Future Month. Um, but uh, I'm going to say a bit about ways to address some of these problems. And of course, you know, there are the, the big things that movements are calling for right now, like defunding, abolition, uh, you know, the end of qualified immunity. There are all those kinds of reforms. And I can, I'm happy to talk about those sorts of things, especially in Q&A. But in the portion of my talk that focuses on Black Future Month, uh, kind of the, the future, um, and how to disentangle policing from segregation, I'm going to say mostly things about other aspects of the reform transformation agenda. So uh, to go back to the first part, so persistence of segregation, what do I mean? So uh, after the 2010 census, there were a bunch of articles and papers written about measurement of residential segregation uh, in cities across um, the nation that basically was like, oh my gosh, segregation is over. This problem that we've been worried about um, consistently, if you, if you take a look throughout um, American history, there was initially what we might refer to as de jure residential segregation or segregation by law. So for example, the federal government created public housing and the public housing would be designated for basically either white or you would say colored back then. Um, and, uh, and so that was, that was a practice for a long time, but really most residential segregation um, uh, certainly at this point, but even by the time of the Fair Housing Act, was more by virtue of particular practices, often, often by kind of private actors who were operating in the housing space. So I think many people have heard of, for example, practices of redlining. 
and the, and also kind of the, the creation of particularly in the Northeast where I live and um, in the Midwest practices uh, created essentially what were then called ghettos that where the those the kind of particular spaces of racial and class subordination operating together and those are intentionally created and uh, at uh, the time of the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968 if you look at a city like Cleveland for example the the, the standard segregation measure uh, was something like 97 out of 100. <laughs> so it's like you're at a, 100 is means that there is absolutely no uh, white black uh, sharing of residential space. And so Cleveland was at like 97. And this is, and, and Cleveland's not an outlier in this regard, especially if you look at places in the uh, Midwest and in the Northeast. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about why that is, but that's, I'm not going to spend a lot more time on that. Um, but so, so what's critical is that even as those numbers, as those measurements have declined, first of all, they've declined unevenly. So uh, I don't remember right now what the 2010 uh, dissimilar, dissimilarity index for Cleveland was. I think it's in the paper, actually. Um, but uh, I think it's something like over 80, and it might be 70. Uh, perfect desegregation along these measures is zero and low segregation among these measures is something like 30. So many, basically many cities that have high black populations have still pretty high dissimilarity indices. So this measure that's typically used to, to talk about segregation. But what's important is that even also is that even as those measures have declined nationally and in certain cities, the shape of segregation looks different. And so it's really important, first of all, I talk a lot of in the paper in kind of boring ways about measurement, but the key point is to get at uh, the how we should define segregation so we know, so when I start talking about policing, we know what police are doing. Like, like what is it that is bad that is going on here? So, um, so I define residential segregation in my project as, as having four parts separation, concentration, subordination, and domination. So to say a little bit more about what that is, first, separation. So uneven geographic distribution of ethnic groups across a coherent geographic area. So that's just, you know, for example, in Cleveland, there are certain areas where uh, there are larger black populations and then there are certain areas both within Cleveland and especially in Cleveland um, in the suburbs that are predominantly white. It's important to understand that, of course, segregation is not a, just a black-white <laughs> phenomenon. Uh, that's the way it's measured, um, uh, which is a problem, but um, uh, typically. But so in particular, I'm just saying as an easy way of understanding what I'm talking about right now, you would think about white areas, black areas, but you also, of course, would think about predominantly Latinx areas, predominantly indigenous areas, predominantly Asian areas and specific groups, uh, depending on where you are in the nation. So second, I talk about concentration. So that's the movement of marginalized ethnic groups into identifiable and stigmatized enclaves. So that is different from mere separation. Uh, I talk about this a bit in the paper. It's really, really an important analytical point, which is to say that separation on its own doesn't have to be bad, 
right? I mean, uh, there are Black separatists who argue that actually the Black future should be one of self-determination, which would mean uh, some sort of separation. Uh, and there's nothing inherently wrong with separation. Uh, I don't, you know, I think there are big questions there about what we envision the polity to, to be. And so, um, you know, that's something I'd be happy to discuss and, and engage in dialogue more in Q&A. But what's critical is the, uh, for at least my project, the way that segregation has actually happened in the United States context, by and large, is this process of concentration. So I mentioned earlier ghettos. Um, the key point with a ghetto, so to speak, is that there is um, there's a kind of a place that is thought of as being a a black space. There are space, and then there are spaces that are deemed as white space. Um, it's, it's that the 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 separation takes on a particular meaning, uh, a racialized meaning. Third, I discuss subordination. So the purpose of those combinations of separation and concentration. There are two purposes. One is in order to establish and reproduce hegemonic racial hierarchy, I say. So basically, the point is to have people who are on the bottom, and that bottom is racialized. And so there's a particular way in which is a, you know, I guess the important uh, clarification point here, and I talk about this a bit in the paper, is the Native American case. So um, if, you, if we look uh, by contrast uh, to the history of Native American populations in the US, actually separation and concentration have been ways of protecting sovereignty and have been thought of as quite valuable. So actually, uh, I'll just mention the recent Supreme Court case, McGirt versus Oklahoma, which is a case in which the Supreme Court found essentially that huge swaths of Oklahoma, including Tulsa, are Creek reservation lands uh, and, are and are therefore, they have jurisdiction over them. And the protection of Native American lands and sovereignty has been really important as a source of power. So as a, port, uh, as a source, as a way of resisting subordination and actually historically, uh, the, in the context of Native Americans, assimilation was a way of robbing culture and uh, and reducing the power of that number of populations. This is, of course, much different from the uh, case of African Americans or Black people in the U.S. Um, and so this is why this definition of segregation, like when I talk about, when I try to define a problem, I don't want to say the problem is Native American reservations. <laughs> like that's not a problem, uh, even though technically it's, there's a separation and a concentration. The problem comes in the working of subordination. And then finally, Another purpose, and this is related, but it's important to distinguish them. Uh, the purpose also is in order to control and hoard social and political opportunity um, and economic opportunity for advantaged groups in ways that are collectively harmful. And I call that domination. This is key. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this. So often when we have studies of segregation and ghettoization and just racial injustice, we turn our eye toward the marginalized community and don't think as much about what the advantaged community is gaining. So what's critical in an understanding of segregation is to see what white people have gotten out of it. 
Um, and uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit more in terms of examples of that in a second, but uh, that's a critical part of understanding uh, what segregation is and therefore thinking about why it should be untangled. So with that, I'm going to move on to the second part of the talk, which focuses on mechanisms of pro-segregation policing. So in the paper, I describe six, just to quickly recap those six, uh, talking about mass criminalization, patrolling of borders, coordinating with other bureaucracies, constructing jurisdiction, constructing neighborhood reputations, and distributing racialized economic value. Now, uh, I have tried to give this talk before and talk about all six, but then that would have us here for the rest of the evening. So I'm gonna highlight three uh, in the talk right now. So first is patrolling borders that I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a bit more about. So there's something about the, the border patrol function of policing that almost sounds like it's almost so obvious, I think, especially for a lot of black people. So when we talk about phenomena like driving while black, and being pulled over. The reason for being pulled over is sometimes the car, but generally it's like, you're not supposed to be in this place. Why are you here? Um, and uh, one thing I just wanna, before I move into the specific example of that, I wanna talk about, I wanna contextualize the conversation about policing kind of relating to segregation at all. So we have this idea, we have this kind of like working, ideology in the United States that the purpose of policing is to respond to and prevent crime. At least in terms of how people write about policing, they usually write about that, right? <laughs> they write about ways that police are trying to intervene in crime. Uh, and there's a way of telling a story about the patrolling of borders, uh, about neighborhood borderlines, uh, as being about the reduction of crime. But what we understand when you actually study policing and when you just kind of have the experience of being a Black person in America is you start to see that patrolling borders has very little to do with crime reduction, but it has a lot to do with the protection of white areas from people who are criminalized, who are seen as criminal, regardless of any actual threat of crime. So here, I give the example of Richard, who is a young man my research team interviewed in Baltimore. So Richard was uh, 19 at the time we interviewed him. Uh, he was telling a story from just earlier that summer of um, being kind of out with his friends. And so he went out with his friends and it's summertime and they're teenagers and they have nothing else to do. So they go to a friend's house that's really far away and instead of taking public transportation back or something like that, because they didn't have any other way of getting there, they just walk. Like, they're just like, it's June and it's hot and it's Baltimore and they're walking all the way back to Baltimore um, through suburbs and they come across this subdivision. And our Richard is like, oh, you know, I wanna be a real estate person. And we had no idea that these kinds of houses with pools were in our neighborhood. So, you know, Richard is telling this story and I'm quoting him now. He says, they had pools and stuff. 
we didn't know pools was out there. We didn't how, know how nice it was. So we was just looking around, just looking, just roaming the streets, just looking at everything. Now, of course, I should, I should have mentioned that Richard is black and his friends are black. Uh, and this area is predominantly white, this wealthy area, um, suburb of Baltimore. So Richard is not an idiot. Um, and he, you know, grew up his entire life being black in America. And you know that there's a certain suspicion that comes along with being black in a white area. Nonetheless, they just wanted to see how other people were living and it was exciting. So, you know, they do what kids do, just kind of like walk around the neighborhood. They stop, they listen to some music um, and then they decide they're ready to go. So they were there for a while and they leave. But not before uh, a police car comes up to them as they're about to leave the subdivision and this kind officer gets out and basically it says, oh, well, you know, people were calling, they're just wondering like, have you been here before? And uh, then, you know, then of course screens all of them because even a so-called friendly encounter in which there's no real reason for suspicion, there has to be some sort of screening. She sees none of them have records. She sends them on their merry way. And so, uh, especially from the policing standpoint, uh, many police officers will say, this is an encounter that went great because and the neighbor calls to check them out. Richard actually said, and I guess the neighborhood watchers called on us. But, you know, someone calls, the officer shows up, the officer's polite, nothing happens, everyone moves on their merry way. And from a police reform standpoint, that sounds really good, and it sounds totally nonviolent. Um, but from Richard's standpoint, he tells a story a little differently. He describes the officer's car pulling up and him being, and his friends also just being really anxious. And he had a younger cousin there, by younger, 16, so <laughs> instead of 19. Um, but he tells his younger cousin, he's like, don't worry about anything. If anything happens, don't worry, I got you. Um, th you know, this could be our last day um, on earth, like who knows? And um, I think what you hear in that sort of reaction is the deep knowledge uh, accumulated over time that a stop is not just a stop for a young Black man in America. Like a, a friendly stop can easily go wrong. Uh, you know, an officer becomes a, a concise, obvious threat of a loss of life, an unjustified arrest, et cetera. And, and Richard knew that, and, and his friends knew that. And that is a form of violence um, because it sends very strong messages about where Black people are supposed to be. Like this, this was nothing. Um, and it became uh, a, an incident in which the message from the state to Richard and his friends as young Black men was that they were just not supposed to be um, in a place like this. And so uh, that's what patrolling borders is. So second, uh, I talk, I wanna say a little bit more about constructing neighborhood reputations. Now, this goes uh, back to a, a little bit to where I started the talk uh, in terms of uh, the Fair Housing Act and what it was meant to deal with. So one thing uh, you should know about the Fair Housing Act um, of 1968 is that it basically forbade many private real estate actors um, from engaging in certain types of discrimination. So one in particular that I just wanna highlight is the prohibition against racial steering. So what does that mean? 
uh, racial steering has been interpreted among, among other things to mean that if someone is looking, like if you have a client, you're a realtor, um, and they're looking for a house, uh, you're not supposed to answer questions like, is this a high crime area? Uh, because we know um, for, from historical reasons, I, I would recommend uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad's book, um, The Criminalization of Blackness, as an example of kind of a, a really well drawn out historical example of how blackness became criminalized. But uh, legal actors know that when that high crime is often a, a coded way of saying this is a black neighborhood. And so realtors are often even um, not necessarily prohibited, but discouraged from, from kind of doing things like saying, oh, here are the crime rates or something like this. So a whole industry has grown up around that inability. Crime rates are often reported by these kind of private neighborhood quality websites, um, the proprietary websites that'll do things like, you know, give a neighborhood a certain grade um, and, you know, com compile a bunch of information. There are also realtors who say things like, well, I can't tell you <laughs> about the crime rates in this neighborhood, but why don't you go talk to the police department? So why is this bad? So, so it's bad um, in part because we know that policing constructs crime rates, not completely. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ridiculous. Now, don't I wouldn't say that every every place has an equal incidence of crime, and there are lots of reasons for that, having to do with poverty and dispossession. But at the same time. Even the types of charges people get are racially determined. Uh, so to focus on crime rates and to have police determining them uh, is a way in which policing constructs the very thing, the very sort of information that people use to determine whether they would want to live in particular neighborhoods. Uh, the third uh, example I want to talk about, and um, I want to sit here for a bit, is probably um, one of the most important, and it's also one of the most overlooked, uh, and that is the mechanism of distributing racialized economic value. Um, so this is to say, and this kind of ties back to that point about what's, what's in it for white people, it's not just quote unquote safety, and it's not even just living in a predominantly white area, it's also this idea that there is something economically valued, uh, valuable about living in a segregated area and police are there to protect it. So um, I actually give an example, uh, I give, I give a short example in the paper, the, the NYU Law Review paper, uh, and I extend that example more in a, an article that I have in the American Journal of Sociology called Located Institutions that came out in January. Um, in that article, I talk about Anne and Ron, who are residents of Lakewood, Ohio, so a suburb of Cleveland, uh, as you know. So Anne and Ron talk a lot about the value of the police in, in their community. So critically, uh, in the data from Cuyahoga County, it was fascinating how much the Lakewood Police Department in particular came up. So I'm really curious what, what people in, uh, in Cleveland have to say about that. But uh, over and over again, specifically mentioned both by people in Lakewood and people who do not live there um, as a, um, as a particularly active police department. So for some people that coded as harsh, for some people it just coded as um, 
just super responsive. Uh, it, like there's a footnote in um, the American Journal of Sociology piece where I a quote a, a white woman who lives in Lakewood and it's just like, they love to respond. They just respond all the time. And I just found that to be really interesting. But Anne and Ron, one of the higher income couples in our uh, data. And so the question that they were asked was, what do you like about your community? And they start off by rattling off things like fake bike paths. Um, but the number three was the police. So the police are amazing. When we had issues with the neighbors or there was an accident that we saw outside or there was a line down, so a power line uh, down outside, immediate. Our taxes go to great use. And then Ron chimes in and says, they're high, but we get what we pay for. So. There are a few really interesting points here. And um, the first uh, is that none of the things that Anne is talking about in the story are crimes. Like, so having an issue with the neighbor is not really something that people tr tr traditionally would understand as a crime that requires policing. Um, an accident that we saw outside. Often police are first responders to those things, but they need not be. EMS can also respond to that, right? I mean, there's a sense that police are like a general purpose form of emergency response, which is, which is a problem if we understand that we don't need armed people to show up to every emergency. Uh, and, and third, a power line down outside. Similarly, <laughs> that is not a crime. Uh, and so uh, one like query, what resources are we missing in these communities so that we don't have to rely on armed forces, essentially, to, to respond to issues like that? Um, so that's, that's one interesting piece of the quote. The second is Ron's, these, oh, and also like and our taxes go to great use. They're high, but we get what we pay for. So there's the sense that the police are a commodity that have been purchased by tax dollars. Um, and uh, that's really important. Uh, some, so in the, in the Lakewood example, there's conversation about taxes. Um, it's really important though when you start thinking about private policing and uh, segregated areas. So uh, my research team also uh, did work in Dallas, Texas. And um, Dallas has this really fascinating uh, a program uh, called Extended Neighborhood Patrol, where essentially they uh, neighborhood associations get together, pool a few hundred dollars, depending on, you know, depends on the neighborhood how much, um, and pay the police department, the Dallas Police Department, to have a designated police officer for their neighborhood. And critically, uh, it's not just that you, I don't know, get some extra patrolling is that you get a designated officer, you get a direct line cell phone to that officer. And also, extended neighborhood patrol comes with a number of other benefits, like a safety audit for your home. You're out of town and you know you don't want there to be mail accumulating, so it looks like no one's home. The officer will come out and pick up your mail to help protect the safety. Now, these are amazing services, but are they police services? And what does it mean? that the um that th that is sort of like a, a benefit of being wealthier that you get those types of services you know we often talk about you hear this buzzword of community policing and uh 
you know, and we could talk, I'm happy to talk about community policing as a concept, but, uh, you know, there's this implicit idea there. It's like, who needs community policing? It's low-income neighborhoods, it's Black neighborhoods, it's Latinx neighborhoods. Uh, we rarely talk about all the community policing that affluent white areas are getting and what that means. Um, the, the, the meaning of community policing in marginalized neighborhoods, and especially those that have been deemed high crime, is basically a way to help the people, but also to find greater numbers of informants about crimes that occur. That's not the mentality that goes into the community policing that uh, affluent white people experience. Okay, so um, that's the second portion of the talk and uh, I'm going to move on now to what to do about all this. So um, uh, there are, I'm just, I should preface by saying there are a lot of things that need to happen, um, but there are so many incremental ways uh, that that can, can kind of chip at um, this, this particular situation. So I actually in the paper talk a lot about more, more sort of structural reforms and that tends to be my, be my bread and butter. I mean, one of the things I think is really frustrating in the police reform space is that there's so little talk about the structural aspects of racism and policing and how they operate together. But I think sometimes, especially for an audience like this, it's important to, for people to be able to situate themselves in structural intervention. So it's like, what are you supposed to do if you are like someone who doesn't work on these issues per se, but you wanna have effect? So, um, so there are a few things I think um, might be valuable. So, so the first, um, and then maybe this is the most obvious, is like there are lots of ways, you know, lots of ways, even short of being in protest yourself, um, although that is a wonderful thing to do as well, of course, but there are ways in which people can show up to uh, kind of express support. I mean, one of the things that's been really exciting about this particular moment is that a broad array of people who don't usually see themselves necessarily as anti-police violence activists are, are being involved. So, so, um, so one is just to kind of keep the juices flowing, right? Like, like let's keep the pressure going and let's not let this movement be erased as, as kind of a movement that started and, and rapidly ended. Uh, the second is uh, holding the police accountable for doing this. So um, one of the things that's so frustrating, again, to me as someone who works on these issues is uh, we see the outrage about police killings. Um, and it is warranted and it is valuable. Um, uh, I, uh, it, like, it, is, it has been astounding to see the reaction to the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, although we, we can talk a little bit more about like how the police play into that particular, Breonna Taylor, obviously, um, uh, 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 Tony McDade, um, so many. Um, but that is not all the violence that's happening. Right. Um, so I gave you the example of Richard as as an example of something that seems fine to people, but is actually violent because what it does is minimize uh, the sense of belongingness in America and minimizes the sense of opportunity for communities. And that stuff happens every day and no one's holding anyone accountable for that. So. Uh, one thing that you can do is go to community meetings with police and ask them about this sort of stuff. 
send a message that you don't want this. It's especially important for white people to do this um, because there's always this backstop. I mean, I, I'm in conversations with police all the time and they say things like, well, we would love to do some of the things you're saying, but we have to respond to the people in our communities. And there's a way in which they're not wrong, right? So like what policing does, and I said re reproduce segregation, policing also more broadly reproduces the status quo. And we live in a world right now where, um, I mean, we saw it in the Amy Cooper case in, in Central Park, it's a perfect example. It's like, well, uh, it's, a, it's a space of white entitlement and, and especially entitlement to having a state force um, operate on your behalf. So that's, so that's one, one piece of this, um, one example. Uh, related to that point, third, don't call the police for, for silly reasons. I don't know, this, sounds, this might sound easy if we're talking about an Amy Cooper, but I'll tell you where it sounds harder to some people. The Richard case probably sounds hard to some people. Maybe you would also think it's strange if you saw a group of unknown young black men walking through a neighborhood that you had never seen before. Um, but uh, we have to change our assumptions. We have to really challenge our presumptions. They weren't doing anything. Um, even the officer, that like, trust me, <laughs> like if they had been doing something, something would have happened, right? Um, they weren't doing anything. Uh, I'm gonna, uh, I wanna lift up the name of Elijah McClain here, um, which is one of the uh, a truly horrifying, I mean, all of these, these deaths are truly horrifying. When I think about Elijah McClain, I feel such a kinship with him, you know? Um, so he was like a weirdo, you know, and he was just walking, you know, he, he went to the store, he's bringing um, something back for his brother. And um, I remember one of the stories I read, one of the people who know him said, oh, you know, he was probably like dancing or something. They, you know, the call, if, you, should, you should listen to the, the 911 call for Elijah McClain. I think it underscores so many of these issues. But, you know, it's his, they were like, oh, you know, he was waving his arms. He was probably just dancing. And I deeply related to this because I'm a weirdo who will like walk through the streets. I've often walked through streets singing to myself and dancing to myself. And, um, it really, you know, despite my, you know, being almost 40 years old, I, it never really occurred to me that even in, even in doing that, I was placing myself in danger. Um, Elijah McClain certainly, you know, lost his life for no reason. The call is just like, I don't know, he looks weird. I mean, it is remarkable how it was about nothing, absolutely nothing. And these calls happen all the time. And police say they, they feel that they have to respond to them. So one structural change um, that I advocate for in the paper is that, okay, so it's like start with people not calling police for, for non-reasons or silly reasons. Also, police shouldn't respond to these types of calls. Police, like, there should be more discretion applied. Uh, when there seems to be no reason for a call. There should have been no police response to the Elijah McClain call. Listen to it. Um, now, this might sound <laughs> like, you know, people are like, what? You were telling police not to respond to things? It's like, yeah. Actually, uh, triage happens all the time in emergency response. I mean, people have this imaginary that uh, every call that comes in is like, eagerly responded to, but that is not true. We've seen that play out in a couple of ways that have been important. So in the Barbecue Becky incident um, years ago in Oakland, uh, one of the reasons that that video went on for so long is that police, like the police response was sort of like, 
they knew that there was no reason for them to be there. And, you know, um, and uh, uh, Miss Schultz kept calling and so they eventually came, uh, but they knew. And so they didn't respond very vigorously and that should be um, kind of a, a standard way of um, dealing with racist calls. Um, I give another example in the paper of uh, a police chief in California who is basically like, ah, I know your call is racist and we are not going to respond because we actually know our community and we know that you are calling, we know who you're calling on and we're not going to dignify that. So that's, that's the way in which people can advocate. Um, so next, uh, supporting alternatives to police calling. So I don't want to be cavalier about this. Sometimes we need uh, support from our state institutions or from the community. Uh, and I would never tell people not to seek that sort of support, but we need to be building alternative ways of getting the type of support we need. So uh, if there are issues with the neighbors, right? Um, think about Ann and Ron. Uh, we should have some way of, for people to deal with that that isn't calling the cops. Um, and there are places in which, um, in which there are alternatives and we need to expand those and i mean as a social scientist you know like a lot of the cachet for policing has come through social science social science is complicit in saying well uh the police did this intervention and it worked better or worse but we often don't study alternatives you know alternatives are have little funding they seem they're kind of quirky and there are ways in which social scientists can study uh, alternative modes of response and and write and speak about them more so that they have more cachet as real meaningful policy interventions. Um, uh, related to that, uh, people can also help by educating themselves a lot more about the sources of violence. So like the, the response is like less police means more violence. But if we think about how violence occurs, it's not because there are like all of these people just out there ready to do some violence and the police are stopping them. There are certain contexts in which violence arises. Violence is situational. That's the way we would frame it in a sociological framework. And so there are ways in which police have been critical to deterring violence, of course. That is true, especially like um, there's this process called focused deterrence or hotspots policing. That's an effective mode of policing. But why are there hotspots, <laughs> right? Like we need to start with this question, like why are there these particular locations where violence tends to occur? It's not because we haven't policed them enough, actually. It's because they are places that um, are that face you know various sorts of resource constraints and have less kind of community uh safety built around them uh and um next i just want to i want to say a word about two more things i know i'm like talking for quite some time but i think i'm i'm still within 45 minutes um so um the the next uh piece i want to say a word about is reckoning Sometimes people call these uh, reckoning or kind of call refer to reckoning as uh, truth and reconciliation, but I think sometimes that that um, I want to use the word reckoning. I'll just put it that way. Uh, and often reckoning is framed as kind of police apology or basically apology for a particular sort of racial harm that occurred in the past. So we. Um, in recent years have seen a few uh, police chiefs and even the head of the International Association of Chiefs of Police apologize for historical police racism. 
But one thing that I think we learn from a, a segregation approach and the segregation view on policing is that actually uh, police are every day engaged in processes that reproduce racial violence. And so apologizing for the past is not enough. Um, but as long as we have police, there's going to be a, a certain kind of racial violence aspect of it. So uh, one thing that police departments can do is engage in these sorts of perpetual apology, but also processes of healing. Now that's especially important in somewhere like Cleveland. So if we're thinking about Cleveland proper, um, well actually not just Cleveland proper, because you know, I think the Lakewood police need to do some reckoning too, based on at least what I've learned about them. Uh, uh, but so think about Cleveland. Cleveland is the Cleveland Police Department is really stands out a lot of ways in the U.S. context. So first of all, Cleveland Police Department is the only police department that has been under what we call Section 14141 consent decree. Um, so uh, in, in which the Department of Justice has monitored the Cleveland Police Department because of a pattern or practice of violating people's constitutional rights and racial bias. Like, so. Cleveland is the only one that has been under consent decree twice. And also Cleveland is the locale of many of the major Supreme Court cases um, on policing. Uh, so uh, I'll just mention Mapp versus Ohio, um, which is the case uh, which the exclusionary rule was developed. So this idea that police don't have a warrant and therefore anything they cover is a few, uh, they recover is the fruit of a poisonous tree. That's a Cleveland case that happened right there in Cleveland. Terry versus Ohio. So you, you probably have heard of things like stop and frisk or Terry stops. Uh, where do we get that, uh, that framing? Terry versus Ohio, a case in Cleveland, from Cleveland in which um, Officer McFadden says, oh, I see these, um, there were black people, but he doesn't say black people. Um, something just didn't look right. Like, so something just didn't look right was the impetus for the search that um, eventually led um, to the Terry versus Ohio decision and the Supreme Court's legitimation of um, processes of stop and frisk. So, um, so real confronting of those, those issues is key. And then finally, I want to mention a proposal that I've, I've written about much more recently, but we, we'll be writing about more. Um, so I'm a big fan of community bail funds as a way uh, for, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, sure, they pay people's bail and don't, and don't require them to go to um, bail bondsmen. But they also bring people in the community together to organize around uh, bail reform, eliminating cash bail, and for some of them, abolition, right? So basically bail funds have been a way to make an, an incremental practical intervention in people's lives while also organizing for bigger change. And so I propose this idea called racism response funds that would be similar. I mean, it may, could maybe just kind of be in conversation with bail funds or be part of them. And which when you have episodes in which, for example, um, the uh, you know, white person calls the police on a black person or um, other person of color. And it doesn't have to be a white person, right? <laughs> like it's just like some, someone, basically there is a, a, race, a racist incident. Um, we have to recognize that that racist incident isn't necessarily just from a bad individual who is a racist. Um, uh, we are all 
subject to the miasma of racism. And sometimes people, even if they are otherwise progressive, even if they are otherwise doing, you know, good liberal or radical, even radical stuff, uh, sometimes they engage in routine racist acts. And there has to be a way to create collective accountability for that while also healing the person who is affected by it. So I had this idea when thinking about those racist police calls. Um, but, you know, a, a community racism response fund could, you know, compensate someone uh, for going through this type of experience could help pay for mental health support. It's really stressful to undergo racism. Could pay for someone like Richard to have to, to have real estate classes so he doesn't have to, you know, to walk through neighborhoods where he's not wanted in order to learn about other places. So, so this is just, these are you know, this idea is still a little preliminary, but um, this is something that people can advocate for, and you know, people could just get together and create a, a fun life. This, um, and so uh, that's one way, one really practical way to build more toward a brighter Black future. So I'm gonna hopefully take some questions if y'all have any. Okay, so so there's uh, so this question, um, you know, could you talk a bit about com how communities served by a single police department with very mixed demographics? So Cleveland Heights, almost 50-50 black and white, though very segregated by neighborhood, can honor black citizens' calls for sovereignty. What are different ways to interpret what sovereignty means? Okay, so. Um, Right. So one thing I think that, like, I've, you know, I've actually been in conversation with um, on this particular question with a lot of people because, um, you know, there are always these calls for community control, but it sounds like in Cleveland Heights, community control is not determinative of anything in particular because of the racial divide. Um, and I would wager, although I, I can't say that I know, but based on other places that I do know, when you have places that are um, technically like kind of diverse, multiracial, it is still white people and affluent people who tend to have control over what the police are doing, right? So it's not, it's it, like, so a 50-50 split doesn't mean there's 50-50 voice. Uh, and there are ways in which the white community can step back, right? And can say, okay, we're going to let people who are have been particularly marginalized by this system for historical reasons have more of a voice in determining how it goes now so there there are really concrete ways in which that could happen so um uh community review boards and community uh control boards have been one way and so that doesn't mean that there's no voice at all for white people in uh, the governance of police in the area but it does mean that maybe you would have a larger percentage of um, black people or people who have been historically marginalized through policing have more of a voice. So um, it's just, here's the thing, it has, all of this has to do with power, particularly in places where there is diversity. It's hard, I think, for people to figure out that they actually just have to give up some of their power and they're not entitled to it. And that's hard, but that's actually like the work that has to happen. So um, yeah, so I think that's mostly my response to that, but I'd be happy to, to engage more if I didn't quite get, get what you wanted. Um, so uh, the next question here is, can you talk about demilitarization as a strategy? So this is a great, great question. Just as background, 
these kind of military grade weapons that police have that we've seen deployed in a lot of places we see them deployed by SWAT teams actually all the time but that people have started to pay attention to in places like Portland as of late and uh, where um, and, and also in videos with other uh, protesters and the violent response uh, people are now uh, paying attention to the fact that police have a type of weaponry that um, is not necessary for reducing the type of crime uh, that uh, we think police are supposed to be confronting. So I think, you know, demilitarization is important, but I should say a little bit more, I think, about why it's hard. Um, so, uh, and there are two, and part of it has to do with the very ethos of policing. So there's this idea, and um, Michael Sierra Arevalo is a great young scholar who's written a lot about how police see themselves as under threat and in danger all the time. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because statistically it's not really clear that policing is one of our most dangerous professions. There are lots of dangerous professions and policing is somewhere on the spectrum, but not the most. Um, but uh, so many times police are trained to see themselves as every day risking their lives and you know and and regardless of how true that is or not it's a really difficult position from which to engage with the community uh and it's also a difficult position from which to demilitarize because basically all of the, this weaponry as it started to become available to police departments in the 1970s the idea is like well we're keeping ourselves safe and also police unions, of course, <laughs> are really behind militarization. It's body shields, but it's also um, grenades. Like it's, it's a lot of different type of tools. And so um, those are some of the ways in which it's hard. I think demilitarization is probably a good strategy. I don't think it goes to the heart of the issues, but um, I, hope that, I hope that overview is somewhat helpful. Um, uh, Right, so um, the next question, uh, you know, white people have weaponized their whiteness to detriment and danger of blacks. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the way black elected and appointed officials have been used to inhibit reforms through skin color politics and pacification. Yes, okay, what a great question. Um, uh, wow, so there's a lot to say about that. So um, I'll start with, um, you know, it's really interesting. So if you think about Cleveland in particular, so I'm thinking about um, the first black mayor of Cleveland and uh, his major agenda was to, um, like Carl Stokes, his major agenda was to diversify the police department. Uh, and uh, at the time, I think maybe that sounded radical to people, right? Like it was like, oh, we're gonna actually have black people on our police force too. And then racism will disappear. Um, now, it may be that he misunderstood um, the way structural racism would operate, but there's also a way in which black elected officials and kind of black elites have um, played a role in legitimating the base, big kind of basic projects of policing. And I will say, you know, it's not, it's not always, I think from bad intentions, I think, um, you know, uh, like I'm thinking about my colleague James Foreman's uh, book, Locking Up Our Own. Um, and there is a real concern uh, in the 1960s and 1970s about crime that was affecting black communities. And of course, this is ratcheted up during the crack epidemic in the um, 1990s. And 
and basically like black people care about safety too <laughs> and like if, and, and but the and you know black people were asking for and demanding for more than criminal legal responses but what was given what was offered is just more just like mass incarceration um, and black elected officials have been complicit in that in part because of respectability politics. It's like your pants are sagging. It's time to get a misdemeanor crime. And it's like, what? <laughs> but it's, it's like a, I, I guess I just put it this way. Maybe this is the point to, um, I don't know, I could, I could talk about this forever. I, I want to say one one quick thing, which is um, I'm thinking about Baltimore because I've, you know, as I mentioned, done research there. Um, and uh, during the uprising in 2015, uh, black elected officials like President Obama, um, like um, the Stephanie Rawlings Blake, the, the, the then uh, mayor of Baltimore, the current, I guess, or like income, oh no, one of the current leaders, um, a previous kind of someone who was in the primary um, uh, for Baltimore mayor, Jack Young, um, I think he was like the, the interim mayor. Uh, they all called all the young people engaging in the uprisings thugs. Like they were part of that thug language. Um, and there's a way in which respectability politics has, has deeply affected um, black people. And, and, I'll, and I'll end on this point on that question, which is to say, uh, just because you're black doesn't mean that you have an understanding and analysis of structural and institutional racism. That's really, really important. I think, um, you know, there is this really cheap way in which uh, many people engage in politics, and actually, it's built into our political structure. You know, like we have um, we have a system in which uh, people are elected from uh, political districts by and large. You know, obviously not for things like mayor or governor, but for you know, state legislature positions, congressional positions, city council. And we have a system of gerrymandering in which there has, you know, there is a way of quote, allegedly protecting the black vote by packing black people into districts to make sure that they can elect black representatives. Um, and implicit in that idea is that a black person just by virtue of being black is going to understand what is best for that uh, community. Now, um, I don't wanna be <laughs> seen as saying that I don't support um, uh, a diverse uh, slate of representatives. Um, you know, I support um, a lot of what we've had to do in electoral politics um, that's built on notions of kind of pre-existing segregation. Like I support having black representatives. I think it's really important, but it's also important for those representatives to be humble and not to think that just because they're black, they have deep insight. It's also important for us to keep our eye on those people, to hold them accountable. We have, have had an epidemic, I'd say, of black elected officials throughout our nation who have not necessarily responded to the views and the concerns of the communities they represent because they're kind of seen as unaccountable to anyone, and that's a problem. So anyway, um, that is the beginning of an answer to that uh, question, but uh, I've talked about it <laughs> probably, so I'm gonna keep going. Okay, uh, so the next question, uh, from working in Euclid to try to enact change around the use of force. 
latest pushback for the police is that they don't know what we want. They think active policing is what the community wants. Active meaning preemptive stops with questioning, drug searches, and other things. Yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, sounds familiar and also sounds, it, so here's the thing, right? If you interview people, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of people in several cities about, and, and by people, I mean black people mostly, not exclusively, but mostly black people, about what they want from the police. And often, even people who have been deeply negatively affected by the type of policing that you're describing here, say they want more of that just directed in, toward different people or just not directed toward them. And I think that's starting to change, but I think the change is slow. Um, but I've interviewed so many people who in one breath, and I talk about this actually in the American Journal of Sociology paper. There's this American dream that we all share uh, and maybe not all, but many of us share, is cross-racial, which is critical, that we're going to have economic opportunity in a capitalist society, that we're going to, you know, have, you know, be able to own our own homes, and that we can call the police and the police are going to protect us. We hold on to that dream, even if it's not our experience, right? Like, so even though I don't own my own home, I'm still like, ooh, home ownership, that sounds wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, and even even though like I have family who own their own home and see the terrible situations that like I've seen that go badly for people in terms of their economic stability, still want it. Um, and I think that's true of policing as well, um, where there's a narrative and an ideology in a way that people will of course talk to a police officer and say, oh, you know, wish you would question those drug dealers on the corner. Like I've heard that so many times. People say that, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty of that, what that actually means for them to engage in this active policing, that's not what people want. So I think we have to change the way we understand basically like how, like what people are crying out for. Like this is the same thing that happened in the locking up our own era, right? Where people are like, I want safety. And uh, the police here, I want police, and the politicians here, I want police. We have to disentangle those two. Public safety and policing are not necessarily the same thing. So actually what people are saying they want is safety. They want stops with questioning and drug searches because they think that all of that stuff, they, they've bought the hype that all of that is what causes violence. And so this is where organizing is really important because I would never say, oh, no, don't listen to people. They don't know what they're talking about. People know what they're talking about as to their own experience, but organizing is really helpful for helping people see the divide between their experience and what they're saying they want. Um, and so I, I think actually that's, that's what's really important. I'm not sure who's involved with Black Lives Matter organizing, et cetera, in Cleveland, but you can't, we can't start in this technocratic way with police. We have to start with the grassroots. That's the theory of change is gonna work here. Um, and so, so, so that's, 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 a big, that's a big issue. And also I would query like who, what people they're talking to. I mean, like there are a bunch of like basic follow-up questions with that, which is just like, who are you talking to? How, you know, did you survey them? Because of course they're gonna tell you they want more of you. I mean, there are all kinds of like just basic follow-up questions on that. All right, and with that, I think, I think that's it. All right. <laughs> Okay. All right. Y'all have a good night and thank you. Um, thank you again.
links to Dr. Bell's recent article in the NYU Law Review, Anti-Segregation Policing, and her recommendations for further reading on the subject are included in the show notes. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com. Check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.